Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What do we need to know about China? Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, April 10, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Welcome, Li Chen. Thank you, Ash. Well, I teased it a bit at the top of the show. You focus on emerging markets, especially China and India. Where are we right now? I think China and India uh, are still going to be the fastest uh, growing emerging markets uh, in the next couple of years. And it's going to uh, put it uh, in, in the geopolitical terms. Uh, India is actually interesting because uh, India now can take a cover for uh, US-China uh, competition. So it actually can benefit uh, significantly from both the growth story and the geopolitical story. Um, for Wisdom Tree, we take a little bit of ex-state-owned view. So when we invest in China or India or in, in emerging market uh, overall, we invest, um, we have strategies that invest in private companies only. And I think that's where, you know, emerging market, the, the, really the vitality of the econ economic growth come from. Yeah, by the way, I should say for folks who aren't familiar, tell us about Wisdom Tree. What do you guys do? Yeah, so Wisdom Tree uh, is a ETF, pure ETF shop. We have uh, significant ETF strategies across not just uh, equity, but fixed income. We have, you know, one of the largest floating rate uh, fixed income strategy, which uh, in the current uh, Fed, uh, you know, interest environment has gained a significant um, exposure. Um, and we also have alternative uh, strategies like put right. So we use a transparent and a systematic strategy. So all of our strategies are open, uh, the, whether it's index or active strategy, um, transparent and, and open, and also for ETF, uh, daily, daily exposure, daily uh, holdings, uh, it's all transparent to investors. So that's what uh, we are good at. We are also uh, starting a wallet, um, you know, digital, uh, digital, you know, uh, strategies for people who, for retail investors who are who are much more interested in the whole, you know, whole solution instead of just single ETFs. We also have a quite um, growing model business. So Wisdentry is. Uh, um, I know most people know about West Gentry as a dividend waiting or hedged uh, Japan or hedged Europe, but we've branched out into several areas. So let's talk a little bit about some of the news flow that we've got today. We mentioned China at the top of the show. Uh, this is an interesting quote. This comes from Jay Shamba. This is the Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs. Uh, recently, actually, uh, earlier this afternoon, late morning, I believe with David Weston on Bloomberg, quote, we occasionally have issues with different economic policies in China, and we will def always defend U.S. economic interests as well. Always a pretty standard statement there. But we will not will not in any way be trying to separate these two economies entirely. This is neither practical nor in our interest. Uh, a surprisingly strong statement 
from the secretary or the undersecretary, I should say, uh, of Treasury for International Affairs, Jay Shambo. What are your thoughts on that quote? Um, I think uh, U.S.-China relationship is unlikely to get significantly better. But on the other hand, at the end of today, when uh, a lot of people might uh, paying attention, there's a uh, you know military exercise of China in Taiwan Strait. But at the end of today, several big issues now are behind us. Uh, one of the really big issues was China, um, uh, U.S. House Speaker uh, meeting with uh, you know President of uh, Republic of China or Taiwan or whichever you know President uh, Tsai Ing-wen. Now that is behind us. So actually, in the next couple of months, we are actually likely to see a little bit warmer up um, of China-U.S. relationship, particularly there's a chance of President Xi visiting U.S. Um, uh, there's also, um, I think, uh, uh, both sides are talking for potential high-level uh, U.S. official visits um, to China. So I think uh, in the next couple of days, you will see uh, the language started to um, toward a little bit more constructive. So I'm not surprised that uh, the, the statement. On the other hand, the background is the same. US-China are in a very intense competition. So if, if it looks good, always keep in mind, you know, the next uh, uh, negative news could hit, uh, you know, in the near, uh, on the horizon. So in terms of risk, I wouldn't uh, read this as a significant uh, U.S.-China relationship uh, getting better, but it will be slightly better than the last couple of months. Yeah, and certainly a contrast from the prior administration. Uh, you mentioned what's happening in the uh, Taiwan Strait. Uh, for those who don't know, it's an area, it's about a hundred and uh, a little over a hundred miles in width uh, that separates the uh, People's Republic of China uh, from Taiwan, uh, obviously a significant strategic location. I believe we also have some senior French lawmakers visiting Taiwan today. What are your thoughts about that, particularly in relationship to the European Union's relationship with China? Um, I'm not uh, very familiar with European politics, but I think uh, President of uh, uh, you know France uh, just visited China, and he you know he was uh, in the news a lot uh, after he mentioned that he wants to reduce some dependency uh, on on the U.S. Actually, he also said before that uh, European Union wants to reduce dependency on China. I think the geopolitical background is that every country right now wants to have some independence, reduce uh, uh, some dependence. So even US uh, wants to reduce uh, independence uh, on Europe. Uh, same thing for Europe as well. In terms of Taiwan Strait, I think um, in the narrowest areas, it's only three, four miles away from China, East Coast, right. where 80% of China's people and economy lives. Uh, so I think uh, probably a typical American uh, couldn't quite fathom how close Taiwan is to China's main population center. So obviously people there, you know, pay attention to Taiwan. Also the Taiwan issue is very much supported by the public. So if there is significant move away of Taiwan from uh, the current status quo, then, I mean, Let's assume the worst case scenario uh, that you know there was a, a independence, you know, change of constitution in Taiwan. Then the Communist Party has to act, or else they will lose power, um, because the public is so much behind the party in terms of uh, 
you believe in, in one China. Um, so of course, you know, what is that one China? Everybody have their own interpretation, right? So there's a, Taiwan's official name is Republic of China and China's official name is People's Republic of China. So which China, you know, we're talking about? Um, but I think uh, in Taiwan, the risk has, has um, longer term risk has increased because China's political uh, future is, you know, a little bit uncertain. And also, you know, U.S. Um, uh, the competition of U.S. and China, how it's going to play it out, is is also uncertain. So, over long run, the risk is a little bit uh, increased. But I think, from the social media, um, it's probably too much of the of the immediate images. I, I think after today, uh, things will quiet down a little bit. There is an election in Taiwan in January next year, the 2024 election. Uh, they, they run the same cycle as the US every four years. So, you know, domestically, there will be a lot of attention pay, uh, paid on in terms of which party. Uh, the current party is a little bit more pro-independence than the uh, opposition party. So it will be very interesting what, you know, what the Taiwanese people want in terms of in this subtle situation. I, I don't see, uh, I don't see um, a significant war risk. Uh, that's what I tell my clients as well. You know, last year when, when Speaker Pelosi went to China, I, I think uh, uh, on the other hand, every country has public opinion, right? So every president has to say, to say something to appease the local public. And that's true for China's party as well. So I think if you view that way, then you you um, you'll be a little bit uh, feel better in terms of a situation in, in Taiwan. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Uh, one more news story that I wanted to point to because it's in uh, the news today, and then we can talk a little bit more about some of the deeper, more strategic issues. Uh, there's a headline in the Wall Street Journal, and this is interesting because it touches on two of your areas of coverage. Uh, for Apple, India is the next China. This is about the notion of the diversification of supply chains away uh, from the People's Republic of China uh, by Apple looking to diversify uh, for all types of different assembly, manufacture, and fabrication in India. Since you cover both of these countries, tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are on this story. Yeah, I think uh, every country, including Chinese companies, by the way, uh, there's so many stories here talking about uh, companies try to move operations away from China. Actually, Chinese companies are doing the same too. If, if you talk to some of the public listed Chinese companies, because they also want to reduce the geopolitical risk. They also want to diversify. You know, they also want to be closer to where their clients are. 
So I think all these factors are going to drive some of the um, some of the manufacturing, in particular, uh, away from China. That that trend I think will continue. In particular, if India is able to grow uh, its you know its its market uh, its economy significantly, so this will be not not surprising. On the other hand. Um, I think some of the talk about moving operations away from China is uh, over uh, dramatized. China also has significant advantage in retaining uh, manufacturing onshore. And you know, the, just yesterday, yesterday um, Tesla is opening another uh, manufacturing uh, in Shanghai. Well, Shanghai is not an obvious choice if you think about it. If you think about cost, labor costs as only one issue, Shanghai is the richest Chinese city. You know, if you think you go for the cheap labor in China, you wouldn't put your operation in Shanghai. But they chose to set up the operation in Shanghai, mainly because the China also have a pretty good transportation, you know, um, you know, supply chain requires a lot of uh, in the coordination uh, closer to materials. So all those makes the total cost of producing in China still quite competitive for a significant uh, number of uh, high-end operations. Apple's move away from China is ongoing, but if you look at the higher-end um, iPhones, they are still produced in China because currently China has uh, a labor force which is more educated uh, than India, and also uh, in a significant advantage of logistics um, in China. So I I will say yes, you know this movement will happen, including Chinese companies. But it's not going to be people people thinking that suddenly you know every company is going to moving significant operations away from China. So you mentioned uh, then-Speaker Pelosi's visit uh, to China. I think you're referring to the visit to Taiwan uh, in August. How significant a disruption is that? And how does the Chinese leadership, uh, the People's Republic of China leadership, mainland China leadership, view a visit such as that? I believe it's the first time we've ever had a Speaker of the House visit Taiwan. Well, actually not true. Uh, the, the Speaker Gingrich, hopefully I can pronounce his name well, <laughs> He also visited. Ah, uh, so this is but, back in 1990s. Mm-hmm, but, so it's been some 25 years or so. Yeah, but uh, actually at that time, US-China was in a better relationship. Mm. So he also visited Beijing. And as one way to show, you know, he's he's willing to talk to uh, everybody. So if you use that as a comparison, indeed, the relationship of US-China has deteriorated from you know more than 20 years ago so that that is uh, um you know everybody should acknowledge the current you know relationship is at the low end of uh, US China relationship in the last uh, 50 years so let's talk a little bit about some of the more strategic topics that you cover in your analysis, uh, one of which is the idea of U.S., uh, excuse me, I should say global oil supplies being denominated in Chinese yuan rather than in simply U.S. dollars. Uh, much talk around Russia, Saudi Arabia, and China on these fronts. Give us the overview of what's happening there. Yeah, so I think uh, there's been so much talk, right, about U.S. Uh, reserve currency. I don't think U.S. Uh, reserve currency is going to 
uh, you know, get away soon. So I that's let's just put that uh, down and say it, you know, as it it's very hard to uh, get away from dollar. And it's the same for China. China obviously wants to, you know, to to because it was seeing how Russia got uh, sanctioned. Um, it's now very feeling the urgency of trying to get some, you know, dollar, uh, some of the operations uh, payments away from the dollar. So you've seen that the, the central government is not, you know, buying as much as treasuries. But if you look at Chinese banks, they're still buying significant treasuries. So that's one thing. Second thing is, even though there's a lot of talk about uh, Chinese using yuan to, um, you know, buy these commodities, in reality, it's still a very premature uh, early stage. So I don't think um, I don't think uh, yuan is in any way uh, going to be a reserve currency. But that said, we have to also acknowledge that uh, China's uh, central bank has been pretty good in managing Chinese currency. It is definitely one of the lowest volatility uh, currencies among the emerging market. It's a low volatility currency. Um, it's also where you know it's being increasingly being used, uh, which is that's what China wanted, and China can claim victory. You know, in some way, let's look at this way: the U.S. dollar right now, 60, 50 percent. <clears throat> Even if it goes to you know less than 50 percent, uh, it's still the reserve currency. But China right now is like two percent. If it gets to four, five, you know, six percent, it's a victory. You know, it's it's a kind of progress for Chinese currency as well, and I think uh, um, they will be able to make some progress uh, to to make the Chinese yuan a little bit more uh, usable uh, to for particularly for the for the emerging market uh, economies. So let's talk. Uh, I wanted to get to a clip in just a second because we're talking about exactly this on Real Vision. Uh, but first, you mentioned uh, the Chinese currency. Talk a little bit about the two different rates, uh, CNY, RMB on the one hand, and CHN, uh, the so-called offshore yuan rate. Talk a little bit about what those two rates represent. Yeah, so that's the thing. You know, Chinese currency is not easy. There's a capital control. Uh, so the government's uh, use the offshore currency market in Hong Kong. Uh, that's where uh, the you know the the offshore Chinese currency is traded, and then you also have the onshore Chinese currency. They they are usually very close. Uh, the government uh, manages this spread uh, pretty tightly. So I think uh, one has to give credit that the People's you know Bank of China has done a very good job uh, in terms of managing the currency uh, volatility. Now, Hong Kong is, um, is con con continue to be where China, uh, you know, as a, as a place to issue more Chinese yuan denominated bonds uh, and also to uh, increase uh, the exposure. Actually, uh, I think um, Singapore is also wanting, you know, to get into uh, more of these uh, offshore uh, Chinese yuan uh, kind of trading business. But for now, Hong Kong is still the center. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
Yeah, so I've teased it a little bit, and I want to talk about this clip because it's very much a positive to everything that we're talking about here right now. This is a conversation between Luke Groman uh, and her own Maggie Lake, a piece called The Deep Dive, Navigating the Most Dangerous Investing Environment in Decades, uh, coming out uh, on 327, it looks like. Uh, let's take a look at this conversation. By way of comparison, the United States is 0.6% FX reserves to GDP. Why are ours so low? Because we can print dollars for critical imports. China couldn't. China's biggest imports are commodities, though. So as we have seen them gain the ability to buy oil, gas, iron ore, copper in yuan, not dollars, that structurally reduces their need to buy treasuries ever again. And if that was the case, we would expect to see the yuan remain generally steady against the dollar, which it has. You know, I think it's down six, seven percent over a decade, right? For the quote unquote disaster that China is in some eyes, that's pretty steady for, you know, a disaster emerging market with a banking problem, mm -hmm. autocratic, blah, 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 blah. Some of which is true. Um, 46 percent FX reserves to Chinese GDP in 2013, 26 percent by 2018, 18 percent now. Mm -hmm. What's the price target on that? I would say the price target on this is probably one or two percent. They have the ability to buy oil, gas, commodities, and you want. And if you take away, China only runs deficits in two things broadly: commodities, semiconductors. Everybody else runs deficits against China. So if they can address their biggest, by far, deficit line item in their trade balance, they have. They have eliminated their dollar risk, their dollar balance of payments risk. Where does that dollar payments of risk show up? It shows up as insufficient buying foreign central bank buying of treasuries because they were the biggest from 2001 to 2013. So this is interesting, talking about the idea of a structural reduction in the need uh, for China to buy U.S. Treasuries. Uh, while that clip was running, I pulled up the tick data. This is the uh, this is the official data from Treasury that denotes uh, by country how much Treasuries uh, foreign nations buy on a monthly basis. China, mainland China, now down below a trillion dollars uh, in holdings. This is uh, this is something that's released, as I said, monthly, uh, now moving to second place after Japan is the largest holder of U.S. Treasuries. What does it mean? Give us a little bit of context uh, for that remark and tell us if you agree uh, with Luke Roman's analysis about a decreasing structural desire on behalf of mainland China to acquire U.S. Treasury securities. I agree with the desire, but Desire is not necessary. Uh, what's you know, uh, China probably desire to be very you know, uh, not not using dollar as a as a payment system. But the the desire is far away from what's actually uh, going to. China is going to make some progress. It's going to increase the yuan usage gradually, but it's very far away when people will you know, completely, uh, will people move significantly away from dollar, including China? Yeah. Uh, so what else haven't we covered that you think is important that you believe our viewers really need to understand about what's happening in China right now? Um, I think uh, I mentioned uh, in our uh, private discussion is that uh, I think there's very little coverage in terms of how China runs as an economy. Uh, when you read the news, uh, most of the is about how Beijing decides 
what's a foreign policy, but actually how China as a command economy works, how the central government works with the local government and how, why China's central government is so reluctant to take on that because the central government can borrow really cheap, you know, 3%, right? Like uh, uh, for China to borrow um, for 10 years, but for local government, they have to pay market rate, significant market rate to borrow. Why Chinese central government is not willing to take on local government debt. And all this really pins down how China as the economy works. I think this is not very well covered uh, in English media. Um, China is better think, thought about as um, almost like a corporations. You have CEO sets the strategy. You have different departments down there. They have a lot of autonom autonomy, but it's because it's very hard to please what the local government does. You know, the central government can only do that much. So that the, the central government usually set a very strict uh, budgeting process so that if there's a problem, the local government are gonna have to work out themselves. So the central government sets a goal, the local government have to implement it on their own right. a lot of times. So this is underappreciated. But if you actually look through how COVID zero is implemented, and then currently, for example, China's economy is not in a very uh, you know a high growth area. Um, a lot of local government is uh, um, getting rid of temp workers, cutting down expenses. Usually in the U.S. situation it will be the central government will be willing to take on a little bit of debt and then um, you know, give money to the, to, the, to the consumers, right? This Chinese government rarely do that. It, it doesn't use physical policy or money policy uh, yeah. too much aggressive. And sometimes people will say, why do they do that? And, and the, the, the why is really on how China operates from a top-down um, top command-based economy. And, and for those who don't know that this idea of a, a command-based uh, economic structure differs from what we have here in the West, uh, a market-based structure essentially means uh, that the means and factors of production uh, are owned by the government at the central level and then are allocated outward, uh, as you say, for local uh, for local governments to implement those policies, which is obviously a tricky balancing act if you're not trying to meet uh, market demand, but rather a mandate that's being given to you. Yes, and the second thing I think uh, in English media is not enough coverage is most of China is seen through Russia. Like w when you're thinking about it, when you're reading some of the, a lot of Russian experts are asked to comment on China. And I have to say, you know, China is, China has solved the one issue that the Soviet economy was never able to solve, which is use the price system. So in China, at least half of the economy is, is capitalism, is completely uh, market-based, like in the US. In many ways, China is more capitalist. So for example, the government, you know, if there's a dispute between the people and the company, the government for many times sides with the companies more than with the people. So, so you know, this, this is a very unique um, structure of China. On one hand, you have a command-based economy. On the other hand, you, ha you have at least 50%, if not more, economy is completely market-based, even more market-driven. So right. I think to understand how, how things work in China, you really need to 
have a unique uh, perspective on China, not just seeing China through uh, the Russian or Eastern European um, lens when, when people think about the socialism. Yeah, this is fascinating, and it, it's such a complex and nuanced topic, this idea of uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, the idea that you do have price signals, and yet you do have a very large command sector of the economy, uh, kind of a mixed economy, not what we have in the West, but also, as you point out, not what we had uh, in Soviet Russia and satellite states. We've got a lot of questions that are coming into us, and I wanted to just jump in uh, and ask you a few of them, because there's some really interesting ones here. Uh, the first one comes to us from YouTube. It's from TrillionX. Uh, and the question is, uh, how do you see uh, ASEAN, this is the Association for Southeast Asian Nations, as benefiting from the expansion of China and India as new economic hubs in the world? And the second question that he follows up with, any views on the repegging of the HKD from USD to CNY? This is, of course, Hong Kong dollar repegging uh, from dollars to renminbi. Yeah, so second question first, I wouldn't worry about the HK uh, PAG at all. Uh, they have significant tools and also China's central bank is behind uh, if, if it needs to be. So I, I would, every time the Twitter, somebody makes a issue about a Hong Kong dollar, I, I just shrug it off, you know, it's social media. I wouldn't worry. Uh, on the second question, on the first question, most of the movement away from China the first mover is towards Southeast Asia, um, uh, not necessarily India, mainly because culturally, you know, it's just easier for, for, for a typical Chinese entrepreneur to move toward there. But India can also benefit because a lot of Western firms uh, is considering India as, as an option. But I think India really needs to, you know, pull its strap together in terms of in infrastructure. Mm and also a broader industrial uh, industrialization. If you look at China, China has been very successful in broad industrialization, which means for almost every industry, you will have uh, enough suppliers within the vicinity. Uh, I think India is still a couple years to go, but it can definitely benefit. Well, here's a great question that comes to us from Ralph Humphrey. Uh, they're usually great questions from Ralph. Uh, the question is, Ms. Ren, I noticed your firm has an ex-state-owned enterprise fund. What was the rationale behind this? Arguably, every Chinese company is a state-owned enterprise, so-called SOE. Uh, give us your thoughts about this. First, um, uh, Wisdom Tree, and full credit to my boss, Jeremy. Uh, he was the one who started this idea. We are not just for China, so we found that uh, the whole emerging market, not just China, but India, China, Brazil, every country, the private businesses are where the, you know, the growth and profitability growth came from. Now I can comment on China and I uh, personally grew up in Zhejiang where for people who are familiar is where Alibaba is based on. It's Zhejiang is a very unique province. Essentially pretty much all Zhejiang's economy uh, I would say 80% is a private business. So if for the whole China, it's about 50 to 60%, but Zhejiang is, you know, significant, closer to 80% economy is private-based. And President Xi uh, really was the party secretary in Zhejiang. So if you actually pay attention to a lot of Chinese um, government directives, Zhejiang is considered the model for the president to tell the other provinces to follow. Mm. Um, so in China, there's a huge difference between um, private and state-owned. The China index that we had has a more strict um, threshold. So it has to be at least 80% um, 
owned by the private business. So it's not yeah. just 50%. Uh, so for us to say this company is private, it, it truly is, you know, very private. Of course, you know, in China, the government always have some say. Um, it's going to take some golden share in some subsidiary of Baba because it wants to control media. You know, media right. is highly controlled in China or in finance, right? Like an IPO was asked to be stopped because the government felt that it's not comfortable when you put a financial company with systematic risk uh, listed in, uh, in Hong Kong. So mm. in that way, yes, you know, China government has significant control, but right. um, easy way is you ask any uh, typical college graduate, their first question is, Hey, I'm in pro I'm you know interviewing for a company. Is it a state-owned or non-state-owned? If 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 there's a no difference, then the college graduate wouldn't even ask, right? So if they consistently ask, that means there's a significant difference between a truly private company and a state-owned company. Really interesting. Great context. Uh, and that's uh, an important point about media. Uh, that's the great thing about Real Vision. My editors and producers have no idea what I'm going to say one minute to the next. <laughs> Li Chen, this was a fab fabulous conversation. Uh, you know, I, like many people, am incredibly interested in what's happening in China, what's happening in India. I'm clearly not an expert on it. Fantastic conversation. So much context, so much detail that we just don't hear uh, in the English language media here in the United States. Final thoughts key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with from this conversation? I think um, try to think about China and the whole emerging market in the context of, you know, national interest. Uh, U.S., obviously, you know, I live in the U.S. So, you know, to, as a citizen, you want to invest in where, where you are living in and, you know, make U.S. Uh, better. So, you know, China is also in that situation. So the future is a competition between U.S. and China. It's not necessarily war, even though the war is, you know, a lot of things are on the media. So in the end, uh, what makes companies successful is to make, for example, be able to invest in U.S. Um, well, be able to produce, you know, things uh, well. And there are a few areas, uh, you know, we could learn where, where China has done well and a few areas that China has, you know, not done well. So I think uh, in the end, it, it's a, it's a U.S.-China competition. It's not necessarily uh, a war. Li Chen, thank you once again for joining us. I hope you can come back and do this again with us soon. Thank you. No, thank you so much. I really enjoyed. Thanks for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back tomorrow at 4 p.m. See you then. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.